0: there, and welcome to tonight's episode of Down to Sleep, the podcast of softly spoken stories to help you get a good night's rest. Thank you so much for joining me. Tonight we will be continuing with Dracula by Bram Stoker. I hope that this podcast finds you well and ready to hear this story tonight to fall asleep with. We've been reading some more sort of gothic or spooky themed books recently because we are moving into October, which of course with Halloween and is occasionally a bit of a spooky season on the podcast on patreon we've been reading twilight jurassic park and more if you would like to hear those readings join me and support this podcast on the patreon at patreon.com slash down to sleep for just a few dollars a month you get access to every episode that has ever been completed audiobooks you get to vote on what book is next which is why we're reading dracula tonight it was voted for by the patreon supporters as well as a bonus episode every single week. So, come and join us at patreon.com slash down to sleep. But otherwise, I just want you to get comfortable, tuck yourself in, and we'll begin. Dracula, Chapter 2 Jonathan Harker's Journal, Continued, 5th of May I must have been asleep for certainly if I had been fully awake I must have noticed the approach of such a remarkable place. In the gloom, the courtyard looked of considerable size, and as several dark ways led from it under great round arches, it perhaps seemed bigger than it really is. I have not yet been able to see it by daylight. When the calèche stopped, the driver jumped down and held out his hand to assist me to alight, Again, I could not but notice his prodigious strength. His hand actually seemed like a steel vise that could have crushed mine if he had chosen. Then he took out my traps and placed them on the ground beside me as I stood close to a great door, old and studded with large iron nails and set in a projecting doorway of massive stone. I could see even in the dim light that the stone was massively carved but that the carving had been much worn by time and weather. As I stood, the driver jumped again into his seat and took the reins. The horses started forward and trapped and all disappeared down one of the dark openings. I stood in silence where I was, for I did not know what to do. Of bell or knocker there was no sign, Through these frowning walls and dark window openings it was not likely that my voice could penetrate. The time I waited seemed endless, and I felt doubts and fears crowding upon me. What sort of place had I come to, and among what kind of people? What sort of grim adventure was it on which I had embarked? Was this a customary incident in the life of a solicitor's clerk, sent out to explain the purchase of a London estate to a foreigner. Solicitor's clerk. Mina would not like that. Solicitor. For just before leaving London, I got word that my examination was successful, and I am now a full-blown solicitor. I began to rub my eyes and pinch myself to see if I were awake. It all seemed like a horrible nightmare to me and I expected that I should suddenly awake and find myself at home, with the dawn struggling in through the windows, as I had now and again felt in the morning after a day of overwork, but my flesh answered the pinching test. My eyes were not to be deceived. I was indeed awake, and among the Carpathians. All I could do now was be patient, and to wait the coming the morning just as i had come to this conclusion i heard a heavy step approaching behind the great door and saw through the chinks the gleam of a coming light then there was the sound of rattling chains the clanking of massive bolts drawn back a key was turned with the loud grating noise of long disuse and the great door swung back. Within stood a tall old man, clean-shaven save for a long white moustache, and clad in black from head to foot, without a single speck of colour about him anywhere. He held in his hand an antique silver lamp, in which the flame burned without chimney or globe of any kind, "'throwing long, quivering shadows as it flickered in the draught of the open door. "'The old man motioned me in with his right hand with a courtly gesture, "'saying in excellent English but with strange intonation, "'Welcome to my house. Enter freely and of your own will.' "'He made no motion of stepping to meet me but stood like a statue.' "'as though his gesture of welcome had fixed him into stone. "'The instant, however, that I had stepped over the threshold, "'he moved impulsively forward, "'and holding out his hand, grasped mine with a strength which made me wince, "'an effect which has not lessened by the fact that it seemed as cold as ice, "'more like the hand of a dead than living man. "'Again he said, "'Welcome to my house.' "'Come freely, go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring.' The strength of the handshake was so much akin to that which I had noticed in the driver, whose face I had not seen, that for a moment I doubted if it were not the same person to whom I was speaking. So to make sure, I said interrogatively, "'Count Dracula?' He bowed in a courtly way as he replied, "'I am Dracula.' and I bid you welcome. Mr. Harker, to my house, come in. The night air is chill, and you must need to eat and rest. As he was speaking, he put the lamp on a bracket on the wall, and stepping out, took my luggage. He had carried it in before I could, forestall him. I protested, but he insisted, Nay, sir, you are my guest. It is late, and "'My people are not available. Let me see to your comfort myself.' "'He insisted on carrying my traps along the passage and up a great winding stair, "'and along another great passage on whose stone floor our steps rang heavy. "'At the end of this he threw open a heavy door, "'and I rejoiced to see within a well-lit room in which a table was spread for supper.' and on whose mighty hearth a great fire of logs, freshly replenished, flamed and flared. The Count halted, putting down my bags, closed the door, and crossing the room opened another door, which led into a small octagonal room, lit by a single lamp, seemingly without a window of any sort. Passing through this, he opened another door, and motioned for me to enter. It was a welcome sight, for here was a great bedroom, well-lighted and warmed with another log fire, also added to but lately, for the top logs were fresh, which sent a hollow roar up the wide chimney. The count himself left my luggage inside and withdrew, saying before he closed the door, You will need after your journey to refresh yourself by making your toilet. I trust you will find all you wish. When you are ready, come into the other room where you will find your supper prepared. The light and warmth and the Count's courteous welcome seemed to have dissipated all my doubts and fears. Having then reached my normal state, I discovered that I was half famished with hunger, so making a hasty toilet, I went into the other room. I found supper already laid out. My host, who stood on one side of the great fireplace, leaning against the stonework, made a graceful wave of his hand to the table, and said, I pray you be seated and sup how you please. You will, I trust, excuse me that I do not join you. I have dined already, and I do not sup. I handed to him the sealed letter which Mr. Hawkins had entrusted to me. He opened it and read it gravely. Then, with a charming smile, he handed it to me to read, One passage of it, at least, gave me a thrill of pleasure. I must regret that an attack of gout from which malady I am a constant sufferer forbids absolutely any travelling on my part for some time to come, but I am happy to say I can send a sufficient substitute, one in which whom I have every possible confidence. He is a young man full of energy and talent in his own way, and of a very faithful disposition. He is discreet and silent and has grown into manhood in my service. He shall be ready to attend on you, when you will during his stay, and shall take your instructions, in all matters. The Count himself came forward and took off the cover of a dish, and I fell to at once on an excellent roast chicken. This, with some cheese and a salad and a bottle of old tokay, of which I had two glasses, was my supper. During the time I was eating it, the Count asked me many questions as to my journey. I told him by degrees all that I had experienced. By this time, I had finished my supper, and by my host's desire, had drawn up a chair by the fire and begun to smoke a cigar which he had offered me, at the same time excusing himself that he did not smoke. I had now an opportunity of observing him, and found him of a very marked physiognomy. His face was strong, a very strong aquiline, with high bridges of a thin nose and peculiarly arched nostrils, with a lofty domed forehead and hair growing scantily around the temples but profusely elsewhere. His eyebrows were very massive, almost meeting over the nose and with bushy hair that seemed to curl in its own profusion. The mouth, so far as I could see it under the heavy moustache, was fixed and rather cruel-looking, with peculiarly sharp white teeth. These protruded over the lips, whose remarkable ruddiness showed astonishing vitality in a man of his years. For the rest, his ears were pale, and at the tops extremely pointed. The chin was broad and strong, "'and the cheeks firm though thin. "'The general effect was one of extraordinary pallor. "'Hitherto I had noticed the backs of his hands "'as they lay on his knees in the firelight. "'They had seemed rather white and fine, "'but seeing them now close to me, "'I could not but notice that they were rather coarse, "'broad with squat fingers.' Strange to say there were hairs in the centre of the palm. The nails were long and fine and cut to a sharp point. As the Count leaned over me and his hands touched me, I could not repress a shudder. It may have been that his breath was rank, but a horrible feeling of nausea came over me, which, do what I would, I could not conceal. The Count evidently noticing it drew back, and with a grim sort of smile which showed more than he had yet done of his teeth, set himself down again on his own side of the fireplace. We were both silent for a while, and as I looked towards the window I saw the first dim streak of the coming dawn. There seemed a strange stillness over everything, but as I listened I heard as if, down from below in the valley, "'the howling of many wolves. "'The Count's eyes gleamed, and he said, "'Listen to them, the children of the night. "'What music they make.' "'Seeing, I suppose, some expression in my face strange to him, "'he added, "'Ah, sir, you dwellers in the city "'cannot enter into the feelings of the hunter.' "'Then he rose and said, "'But you must be tired.' Your bedroom is all ready. Tomorrow you shall sleep as late as you will. I have to be away till the afternoon. So sleep well, and dream well. With a courteous bow he opened for me himself the door to the octagonal room, and I entered my bedroom. I am all in a sea of wonders. I doubt, I fear, I think strange things which... I dare not confess to my own soul. God keep me, if only for the sake of those dear to me. The 7th of May. It is again early morning, but I have rested and enjoyed the last twenty-four hours. I slept till late in the day and awoke of my own accord. When I had dressed myself I went into the room where we had supped and found cold breakfast laid out with coffee kept hot by the pot being placed on the hearth. There was a card on the table which was written, I have to be absent for a while. Do not wait for me. D. I set to and enjoyed a hearty meal. When I had done, I looked for a bell so that I might let servants know that I had finished, but I could not find one. There are certainly odd deficiencies in the house. Considering the extraordinary evidences of wealth which are around me, the table service is of gold and so beautifully wrought that it must be of immense value. The curtains and upholstery of the chairs and sofas, the hangings of my bed, are of the costliest and most beautiful fabrics. They must have been of fabulous value when they were made, for they are centuries old, though in excellent order. I saw something like them in Hampton Court, but There they were worn and frayed and moth-eaten, but still in none of the rooms is there a mirror. There is not even a toilet-glass on my table. I had to get the little shaving-glass from my bag before I could either shave or brush my hair. I have not yet seen a servant anywhere, or heard a sound near the castle except the howling of wolves. Some time after I had finished my meal... I do not know whether to call it breakfast or dinner, for it was between five and six o'clock when I had it. I looked about for something to read, for I did not like to go about the castle until I had asked for the Count's permission. There was absolutely nothing in the room. Book, newspaper, even writing materials. So I opened another door in the room and found a sort of library. The door opposite of mine I tried, but found it locked. In the library, I found to my great delight, a vast number of English books, whole shelves full of them, bound volumes of magazines and newspapers. A table in the centre was littered with English magazines and newspapers, though none of them were of a very recent date. The books were of the most varied kind. History, geography, politics, political, economy, botany, geology, law all relating to England and English life, customs and manners. There were even such books of reference as the London Directory, the Red and Blue Books, Whittaker's Almanac, the Army and Navy List, and it somehow gladdened my heart to see it the law list. Whilst I was looking at the books, the door opened and the Count entered. He saluted me in a hearty way, and hoped that I had had a good night's rest. He went on, I am glad that you found your way in here, for I am sure there is much that will interest you. These companions, he laid his hand on some of the books, have been good friends to me, and for some years past, ever since I had the idea of going to London, have given me many, many hours of pleasure. Through them I have come to know your great England. To know her is to love her. I long to go through the crowded streets of your mighty London. To be in the midst of the whirl, the rush of humanity. To share its life, its change, its death, and all that makes it what it is. But alas, as yet I only know your tongue through books. To you, my friend, I look that I know it to speak. "'Count,' I said. "'You know your English, and speak it thoroughly.' "'He bowed gravely. "'I thank you, my friend, for your all-too-flattering estimate, "'but yet I fear that I am but a little way on the road I would travel. "'True, I know the grammar and the words, but yet I know not how to speak them.' "'Indeed,' I said, "'you speak excellently.' "'Not so,' he answered.' Well, I know that, did I move and speak in your London, none there are who would not know me for a stranger. That is not enough for me. Here I am noble, the common people know me, and I am master. But a stranger in a strange land he is no one, men know him not, and to know not is to care not for. I am content if I am like the rest, so that no man stops if he sees me, or pause in his speaking if he hear my words, ha, a stranger. I have been so long master, that I would be master still, or at least that none other should be master of me. You come to me not alone, as agent of my friend Peter Hawkins of Exeter, "'to tell me all about my new estate in London. "'You shall, I trust, rest here with me a while, "'so that by our talking I may learn the English intonation, "'and I would that you tell me when I make error even smallest in my speaking. "'I am sorry that I had to be away so long today, "'but you will, I know, forgive one who has so many important affairs in hand.' Of course I said all I could about being willing and asked if I could come into that room when I chose. He answered, Yes, certainly, and added, You may go anywhere you wish in the castle except where the doors are locked, where of course you will not wish to go. There is reason that all things are as they are. Did you see with my eyes and know with my knowledge you would perhaps better understand? I said I was sure of this, and he went on. We are in Transylvania, and Transylvania is not England. Our ways are not your ways. There shall be to you many strange things. Nay, from what you have told me of your experiences already, you know something of what strange things there may be. This led to much conversation, and as it was evident that he wanted to talk, if only for talking's sake, I asked him many questions regarding things that had already happened to me, or come within my notice. Sometimes he sheered off the subject or turned the conversation by pretending to not understand, but generally he answered all I asked most frankly. As time went on, and I had got somewhat bolder, I asked him of some of the strange things of the preceding night for instance, why the coachman went to the places where he had seen blue flames. He explained to me that it was commonly believed that on a certain night of the year, last night in fact, when all the evil spirits are supposed to have unchecked sway, a blue flame is seen over any place where treasure has been concealed. That treasure has been hidden, he went on, in the region through which you came last night. There can be but little doubt, for it was on the ground fought over for centuries. Why, there is hardly a foot of soil in all this region that has not been enriched by the blood of men, patriots or invaders. In old days there were stirring times. When the Austrian and the Hungarian came up in hordes, patriots went out to meet them men and women, the aged, children too, and waited their coming on the rocks above the passes that they might sweep destruction on them with their artificial avalanches. When the invader was triumphant, he found but little for whatever there was has been sheltered in friendly soil. But how, said I, can it have remained so long undiscovered when there is a sure index to it if men will but take the trouble to look? The Count smiled and his lips ran back over his gums. The long, sharp, canine teeth showed out strangely. He answered, "'Because your peasant is at heart a coward and a fool.' Those flames only appear on one night, and on that night no man of this land will, if he can help it, stir without his doors. And, dear sir, even if he did, he would not know what to do. Why, even the peasant that you tell me of who marked the place of the flame would not know where to look in daylight, even for his own work. Even you would not. I dare be sworn be able to find these places again there you are right I said I know no more than the dead were even to look for them then we drifted into other matters come he said at last tell me of London of the house which you have procured for me with an apology for my remissance I went into my own room to get the papers from my bag whilst I was placing them in order I heard a rattling of china and silver in the next room As i passed through i noticed the table had been cleared and the lamp lit for it was by this time deep into the dark the lamps were also lit in the study or library and i found the count lying on the sofa reading of all the things in the world in english bradshaw's guide when i came in he cleared the books and papers from the table and with him i went into the plans and deeds and figures and all sorts he was interested in everything He asked me a myriad of questions about the place and its surroundings. He clearly had studied beforehand all he could get on the subject of the neighbourhood. He evidently at the end knew very much more than I did. When I remarked this, he answered, Well, but, my friend, is it not needful that I should? When I go there, I shall be all alone, and my friend Harker Jonathan, nay, pardon me, I fall into my country's habit of putting your patronymic first. My friend, Jonathan Harker, will not be by my side to correct and aid me. He will be in Exeter, miles away, probably working at Papers of the Law with my other friend Peter Hawkins, so. We went thoroughly into the business of the purchase of the estate at Purfleet. When I had told him the facts and got his signature to the necessary papers and had written a letter with them ready to post, to Mr. Hawkins, he began to ask me how I had come across so suitable a place. I read to him the notes which I had made at the time, which I inscribe here. At Purfleet, on a by-road, I came across just such a place as seemed to be required, and where was displayed a dilapidated notice that the place was for sale. It is surrounded by a high wall of ancient structure, built of heavy stones." It has not been repaired for a large number of years. The closed gates are of a heavy old oak and iron, and all eaten with rust. The estate is called Carfax, no doubt a corruption of the old quatreface as the house is four-sided, agreeing with the cardinal points of the compass. It contains in all some twenty acres, quite surrounded by solid stone wall above mentioned. There are many trees on it which make it in places gloomy, and there is a deep, dark-looking pond or small lake, evidently fed by some springs, as the water is clear and flows away in a fair-sized stream. The house is very large, and of all periods back I should say to medieval times, for one part is of stone, immensely thick, with only a few windows high up and heavily barred with iron. It looks like part of a keep and is close to an old chapel or church. I could not enter it as I had not the key of the door leading to it from the house, but I have taken with my Kodak views of it from various points. The house has been added to, but in a very straggling way, and I can only guess at the amount of ground it covers, which must be very great. There are but few houses close at hand. "'one being a very large house only recently added to "'and formed into a private lunatic asylum. "'It is not, however, visible from the grounds. "'When I had finished,' he said, "'I am glad that it is old and big. "'I myself am of an old family, "'and to live in a new house would kill me. "'A house cannot be made habitable in a day, "'and after all, how few days go to make up a century?' I rejoice also that there is a chapel of old times. We Transylvanian nobles love not to think that our bones may lie amongst the common dead. I seek not gaiety nor mirth, not the bright voluptuousness of much sunshine and sparkling waters which please the young and gay. I am no longer young, and my heart, through weary years of mourning the dead, "'is not attuned to mirth. "'Moreover, the walls of my castle are broken. "'The shadows are many, and the wind breathes cold "'through the broken battlements and casements. "'I love the shade and the shadow, "'and would be alone with my thoughts when I may.' "'Somehow his words and his look did not seem to accord, "'or else it was that his cast of face made his smile look malignant. Presently, with an excuse, he left me. Asking me to put all my papers together, he was some little time away, and I began to look at some of the books around me. One was an atlas, which I found and opened naturally in England, as if that map had been much used. On looking at it, I found in certain places little rings marked, and on examining these, I noticed one was near London on the east side manifestly where his new estate was situated the other two were Exeter and Whitby on the Yorkshire coast it was the better part of an hour when the count returned Ah, he said steal at your books good but you must not work always come I am informed that your supper is ready he took my arm and went into the next room where I found an excellent supper ready on the table. The Count again excused himself as he had dined out on his way being away from home, but he sat on the previous night and chatted whilst I ate. After supper I smoked as on the last evening, and the Count stayed with me chatting and asking questions on every conceivable subject, hour after hour. I felt that it was getting very late indeed, But I did not say anything, for I felt under obligation to meet my host's wishes in every way. I was not sleepy. The long sleep yesterday had fortified me, but I could not help experiencing that chill which comes over one at the coming of dawn, which is like in its way the turn of a tide. They say that people who are near death die generally at the change to dawn, or at the turn of the tide. Anyone who has, when tired and tied, as it were, to his post, experienced this change in the atmosphere can well believe it. All at once we heard the crow of a cock coming up through the clear morning air. Count Dracula, jumping to his feet, said, Why, there's morning again. How remiss I am to let you stay up so long. "'You must make your conversation regarding my dear new country of England less interesting, "'so I may not forget how time flies by us.' "'With a courtly bow he quickly left me. "'I went into my own room and I drew the curtains, but there was little to notice. "'My window opened into the courtyard. "'All I could see was the warm grey of quickening sky. "'So I pulled the curtains.' again 8th of May I began to fear as I wrote in this book that I was getting too diffuse and now I am glad that I went into detail from the first for there is something so strange about this place and all in it that I cannot but feel uneasy I wish I was safe out of it or that I had never come it may be that this strange night existence is telling on me but would that that were all if there were anyone to talk to I could bear it but there is no one I have only the count to speak with and he I fear I am myself the only living soul within this place let me be prosaic so far as facts can be it will help me to bear up but my imagination must not run riot with me if it does I am lost let me say at once how I stand or seem to I only slept a few hours when I went to bed feeling that I could not sleep any more, I got up. I had hung my shaving glass by the window and I was just beginning to shave. Suddenly I felt a hand on my shoulder and I heard the count's voice saying to me good morning. I started for it amazed me that I had not seen him. The reflection of the glass covered the whole room behind me. In starting I had cut myself slightly but I did not notice it at the moment. Having answered the Count's salutation, I turned to the glass again, to see how I had been mistaken. This time there could be no error, for the man was close to me, and I could see him over my shoulder. But there was no reflection of him in the mirror. The whole room behind me was displayed, but there was no sign of a man in it, except myself. This was startling and coming on top of so many strange things was beginning to increase that vague feeling of uneasiness which I always have when the count is near but at the instant that I saw that the cut had bled a little the blood was trickling over my chin I laid down my razor turning as I did so half around for some sticking plaster when the count saw my face His eyes blazed with a sort of demoniac fury. He suddenly made a grab at my throat. I drew away and his hand touched the string of beads which held the crucifix. It made an instant change in him. The fury passed so quickly I could hardly believe that it was ever there. Take care, he said. Take care how you can cut yourself. It is more dangerous than you think in this country. Seizing the shaving-glass, he went on. And this is the wretched thing that has done the mischief. It is a foul bauble of man's vanity. Away with it. Opening the heavy window with one wrench of his terrible hand, he flung out the glass, which was shattered into a thousand pieces on the stones of the courtyard far below. He withdrew without a word. It is very annoying, for I do not see how I am to shave unless in my watch case or the bottom of the shaving pot which is fortunately of metal. When I went into the dining room, breakfast was prepared, but I could not find the count anywhere, so I breakfasted alone. It is strange that as yet I have not seen the count eat or drink. He must be a very peculiar man. After breakfast, I did a little exploring in the castle. I went out on the stairs and found a room looking towards the south. The view was magnificent. From where I stood, there was every opportunity of seeing it. The castle is on the very edge of a terrible precipice. A stone falling from the window would fall a thousand feet without touching anything. As far as the eye can reach is a sea of green treetops With occasionally a deep rift where there is a chasm Here and there are silver threads Where the rivers wind in deep gorges through the forests But I am not in heart to describe beauty For when I had seen the view I explored further Doors, doors, doors everywhere all locked and bolted in no place save from the windows in the castle walls is there an available exit the castle is a veritable prison and i am a prisoner and that is where we close the book on this episode of down to sleep and on dracula chapter two thank you for joining me tonight do come and join us on the patreon if you'd like to support this podcast and get every single episode including those bonus episodes every week at patreoncom sleep. i hope that you have wonderful rest wonderful dreams and that there isn't count dracula in them trying to have a little nibble on you until next time good night